What Happened When Monday is brought to you by 1FMC.com. When you're getting ready to buy your next house, why not deal with somebody you know? Me, Conrad Thompson and First Family Mortgage, we're happy to hook you up. If you're already a homeowner, well, we can get you a better deal on your current home. If you're in a 30-year loan, what are you waiting for? You're overpaying your single biggest bill, and you may not even realize it. Maybe you've got some debt you'd like to get rid of, a second mortgage, some credit cards. Wouldn't it be nice to get rid of a car payment? We can even show you how to skip your next two house payments. But maybe best of all, you don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket to do this. If we can't save you money, we won't waste your time. Call the number one best in business. Call First Family Mortgage right now at 888-425-0105. Check us out online and get a quick quote right now at 1FMC.com. Although I'm here in Huntsville, we're licensed in 21 states. I'd be happy to help you save some money. And if you've got any questions, message me directly on Twitter at Hey Hey It's Conrad in MLS number 65084. This is the MLW Radio Network. Thompson, and you're listening to What Happened When? Monday, right here on MLW Radio and our Master of Ceremonies, Mr. Tony Schiavone. Tony, what's going on, man? Conrad, my good friend, how have you been this past week? Good seeing your face, good talking to you, and also I want to say hello to all the fans who have said uh, very kind things to me. I I do want to start this by saying this. Conrad sent me a, a, a tweet, actually a text, and he said, Start unblocking everybody, dude. Uh, <laughs> and start over. You know how long it took me to unblock everybody? You unblocked everybody? Everybody except... I, I tell you who I've... Un, I've unblocked everybody except uh, parody accounts. Okay. Let me tell you why I keep parody accounts. There was like seven of them in my name. Uh, and there's a couple of Mike Today parody accounts, JR parody accounts... I am. I kept them blocked because these people, first of all, wanted to pretend they were us until Twitter stepped in and said, "You can't do that." Right. So they're uh, now they say we're a parody account. We're not the real person. Yeah, but at first they didn't want. They wanted to fool everybody, and I think that is uh, almost like attempting to uh, steal your social security number, pretending to be somebody else. Sort of. I, don't have any, I don't have any time for that. So they're gone. Uh, and there's a couple of jackasses who are gone. Uh, but overall, Conrad, it took me a couple of days to uh, unblock everybody. <laughs> <laughs> it did. Oh, my gosh. I love I've that. I've got a couple of people say, hey, thank you very much for unblocking me. I really appreciate it. Uh, and I even turned around and started following these people. So uh, the uh, so now we're fresh. we got a new block list of about about maybe 15 people. Uh, and of course, some of them may be uh, some of them may be the same person. <laughs> Who knows? You know how creepy it can be on the other side of Twitter. Uh, so anyway, I did that, uh, and I, I feel I feel very good about it. Thank you, Conrad. You're you're. Uh, I know a lot of people think you're a prick. I am, uh, but uh, I'm here to say you're not, uh, and you <laughs> uh, you've shown me the way. So come on and started following me. However, I do need to say, if you're an asshole. It's not going to take long for you to get on the block list. I, I don't have time for assholes. You know who you are out there. 
Yeah, what I found most interesting is people who are actually active in the wrestling business who would DM me and say, dude, why does Tony hate me? I mean, guys who are on TV every week. Dude, why does Tony hate me? What did I do? That's what prompted the dude. You got to start blocking guys. They're not trolling you. But uh, let's participate in this. If you enjoyed being blocked or you'd like to be blocked, go ahead and cruise on over to ProWrestlingTees.com forward slash WHW and check out two of the great new shirts. We've got one that maybe will be our most popular shirt. It's got the WHW logo at the top and in the old familiar font that you know and love, the great American blocked party. There it is. (laughs) Go get it right now. ProWrestlingTees.com forward slash WHW. And if you're maybe a Brock Lesnar fan and you enjoy this show, pick up the Eat, Sleep, Block, Repeat WHW shirt. And a little throwback from last week, if you enjoyed our first Nitro Edition show, uh, we had a little conspiracy theory towards the end of the show. And now we have a shirt at ProWrestlingTees.com forward slash WHW. Pasta still rules. (laughs) Had a lot of response on our talk about pasta mania, didn't we? Yeah, I yeah, uh, we did. I think it's maybe one of the more unsung conspiracy theories of professional wrestling that didn't get a lot of play before last week, but now it does. Uh, yeah. So if you don't know what we're talking about, you owe it to yourself to go check out our episode on the very first Monday Nitro. It's about an hour and a half in, and uh, prepare to have your mind blown. Mm, absolutely. Prepare to have your mind blown. I also want to bring up something else uh, before we start this. Uh, uh, let me say again. I do. A, I, I'm very appreciative, and, and I'm sincere here about uh, about you, Conrad, about Bruce Pritchard, uh, for uh, I, I guess uh, getting me back into the sport, so to speak, in our own way. Uh, I, I'm thinking of the the line from Godfather Three: "Just when I'm out, they pull me back in." Uh, but also uh, because of a lot of talk about this, uh, I'm going to be going to WrestleCon. And I'll be there uh, during, uh, during, of course, WrestleMania weekend in Orlando uh, as a guest of RF Video. And I'll be uh, meeting and greeting and uh, signing autographs with fans along with Tommy Dreamer, uh, Lisa Marie Varon, uh, One Man Gang, and uh, whichever of the uh, Bubba Ray or, Budley, or Bubba Dudleys show up. Or is it Bully Ray or <laughs> Bubba Dudley? Something like that. Okay. All right. I didn't, you know, again, that was kind of after me. Right, the Dudley Boys thing. Or, no, yeah. I mean, it was going on while we were involved in some other stuff. So, well, anyway, I look forward to that. WrestleCon is huge. It's a big deal, and yeah. uh, now Tony Schiavone is on the great list of stars who you'll be able to meet and uh, greet and conversate with and fellowship with and buy some swag and get a picture and uh, get an autograph and everything in between. So if you're going to WrestleCon, look for that RF video booth and go over and say hello to Tony. He would love to block you in person. It would make, (laughs) it would cut out a lot of the middleman bullshit. Okay. I'm going to say this too. You son of a bitch. Are you going to be there? Are you going to be at WrestleCon? Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a wrestling personality, so I'm not booked. I'm just going to go, you know, as a fan and and wander around. don't, Don't worry. You're going to be singled out every time I see you. <laughs> All right. I mean, you, we talk about you and I chat about this a lot back and forth, but you are a big star. You don't want to be seen as that. I'm but not. You are. No. And I'm going to make sure that people know that. Well, I disagree. I'm just a fan talking to my buddies here about wrestling and my other buddy, Bruce Pritchard, he'll be there too. So if you enjoy yeah. 
uh, these WWF and WCW podcasts that we're doing with MLW, be sure to check out WrestleCon and go say hello to Bruce and Tony. All right. Now, All right, let's get to serious business. How's that sound? <laughs> okay. Serious business. Serious business. Oh, shit, man. That's First great. Clash of the Champions. It won our poll this week. We'll give you an all-Crockett poll. We heard you loud and clear. I didn't think this one would win, but I'm glad it did because we get to talk a little business with it as well. Uh, and as we're talking now, uh, you know, depending on when you're listening to this, we're in the middle of WrestleMania season in 2017. So it's only fitting that our first all Crockett poll, uh, results in JCP's answer to WrestleMania four. So it's clash of the champions one. And before we talk about WrestleMania and clash of the champions, let's sort of set the stage. Uh, Bill Watts had lost a significant amount of money with his UWF promotion and wound up selling the business to Crockett in April of 87. Uh, Jim Crockett keeps the name around through the end of 87. So through Starcade 87, and that's the first major event featuring the UWF stars on a Jim Crockett promotions banner. Uh, so the wrestling landscape is changing rapidly and we're here at the end of 87 and it's now, Essentially a two horse race with Crockett and McMahon. Would you agree with that, Tony? That yeah, at yeah. that point that's pretty much it. Yeah, I you know what I, I think it was when when Crockett uh first bought uh the time from Vince McMahon, and I guess most people feel that uh the money that Vince got from the time slot of selling TBS to Crockett he used to uh you know save his company and move ahead and and build WrestleMania. But I think it was a, on a national level, I think it was a two-horse race anyway before that time. Right. I would agree. Because of the exposure that we had on TBS. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk about this UWF uh, purchase. It was on our poll, and I'm sure we'll talk about it again sometime in the future. But can you describe the decision to buy the UWF in a single word? Bad. (laughs) There we go. That's what I was looking for. Only because... uh, that it, it it became, and I'm talking about yeah, Jimmy and, and Dusty moved from Charlotte uh, to Dallas. Uh, they purchased uh, a, a a gigantic, uh, beautiful because I was there once office, uh, and uh, I guess the rent that went with that. Good news is uh, they got on board. Uh, one of the great announcers, if not maybe the greatest announcer ever, and Jim Ross. Right. And they got some others. They got some stars. Uh, you know, you saw in that Clash of the Champions an interview by Dr. Death, Steve Williams. Uh, and they got uh, a lady by the name of Janie Engel, who is uh, very instrumental behind the scenes and maybe one of the most popular people behind the scenes in wrestling. Uh, and uh, so I, they got some good stuff, but I think overall – uh, I don't know if the money hurt Crockett. The money they had to outlay for all that hurt Crockett eventually down the road. We'll get into that uh, on a future episode, I'm sure. But the point we're trying to make is long before there was a Monday Night War, there was indeed a pay-per-view war, and we're going to talk about it today. Uh, the Clash of the Champions that we're discussing today is essentially round three in that war. Uh, Vince McMahon made the first strike in November of 87, of course, the NWA had presented their biggest annual event, Starcade, on pay-per-view, and that was the very first time that Vince presented Survivor Series. So uh, to kind of set the backstage here, the backstory is 
big wrestling shows on Thanksgiving day had been a tradition for Jim Crockett for years and years. Uh, and in the years prior, it had been presented only as closed circuit. Uh, Starcade 87 was the first actual Crockett pay-per-view. And we'll cover that show sometime in, in, in the future. I'm sure. Uh, but on that night in November of 87, not only did the fans have to choose Starcade or Survivor Series, but the cable systems did too. Um, of course, Vince wanted to counter-program that and make the fans choose. And Jim Crockett tried to be accommodating to the fans and the cable systems. And they actually moved their show from an evening start to an afternoon start. But when they do this, uh, Jim Crockett... Uh, winds up on the losing end of the stick still because Vince goes out and cuts deals with the cable systems that says, if you choose to air Starcade over survivor series, we will not let you run WrestleMania. Uh, and most, all of those cable systems gave in to Vince's demands. And that's a big deal at the time. Uh, so the WWF's counter-strike was hugely successful and the survivor series outsells Starcade at a rate of more than two to one. And let's remember, this is the very first Survivor Series. People don't even really know what they're getting. Starcade is now the top show for Jim Crockett for years and years. But with the exception of a few strongholds, they had markets uh, for Jim Crockett. Everybody else just elects to cover the Survivor Series because they don't want to lose the potential WrestleMania revenue. Uh, let's get in our way back machine here, Tony. What was the reaction to learning that Vince was going to present survivor series head to head with Starcade? And then when did you guys know that that was going down? I knew it was going down almost, uh, when everybody did, uh, it's something that we discussed in the office. I think everybody was really pissed, uh, because I think this is, is known as, uh, the sabotage of Starcade, And, uh, it was, in many ways, uh, I guess a good business move, but in many ways it was a move that Vince was showing that, you know, he thought this was a fight and he had the tools to win the fight. Uh, that was a big turning point in, in Jim Crockett promotions that, uh, combined with the, uh, sale of, uh, or the purchase of the UWF to me, uh, were, were two of the things that, that really helped, uh, hurt, hurt Jim Crockett promotions and had it move, go downhill. So you consider uh, it to be smart, but a dirty tactic. Dirty tactic, but a smart business tactic. He wanted to run his uh, opposition out of business, and that helped do it. What was the common thinking regarding Crockett getting into pay-per-view at this time? Is this, at the time, considered you know the next level, so to speak? Or is it just yes, something it they're going to try since Vince had been successful with it? No, it's, it's considered the next level. They had a plan to move ahead and forge ahead, not to try it. I mean, Starcade had not really been a pay-per-view, Conrad, but Starcade before that had been a closed-circuit event. Right. And the, the closed-circuit event was very successful, being showing a Starcade in Greensboro and having a closed-circuit and all the other outlets in the Crockett Territory had been successful. So this was just the next step moving forward. I don't think this was a, we'll stick our foot in the water, see what it is. I think they were you know, full bore going ahead with this. And this was part of the business plan. Uh, Dusty Rose has told stories about going with Jim Crockett to meet with cable systems in New York and knowing right then that they weren't going to carry them. Uh, obviously Vince already had a foothold in pay-per-view. So he has the power position here. 
Uh, and back then, as we said, you negotiated a lot of those deals with the individual cable system providers. It's a lot different than what many of us remember from the mid-90s with like Viewer's Choice and In-Demand and stuff like that. Do you remember hearing about any of those specific meetings with cable systems? I remember there we, uh, and I was involved in this one. The cable system wanted one of our wrestlers to make an appearance. And I'm not so sure where that was right now. I'm, I'm thinking it was out west somewhere. And we had scheduled Barry Windham uh, to make that appearance. And Barry did a no-show. And it goes back to, again, you know, I talked about this on an earlier episode, how much no-shows hurt the business. Uh, and I remember I was to call Barry at his home and I talked to his wife or his girlfriend at that time. I can't remember. And they said that Barry did not know about this appearance. And I said, well, we need to get him there. And of course, again, we were not a very, we were not a very organized business. We didn't have a big staff like Vince had up in Connecticut. So here I am working kind of in the back, uh, the back scenes, working in the office with Sandy Scott and Gene Anderson. And they had me call Barry, and I told him Barry's not going to show. And I think that that really hurt Jimmy's standing with some of the cable companies. Uh, that's one of the things that I remember uh, about meetings with, uh, with cable systems. Uh, and it just, uh, just a feeling about that, uh, you know, Dusty had some star power. And I can understand Dusty going to cable system meetings, but – I have a feeling that when Vince met with cable systems, Hulk Hogan wasn't there. Well, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And Vince had all these people, had this whole staff of people probably going to meet with cable systems where Jimmy just had like a couple. So you could see as a cable system, I'm thinking I may be wrong. Here we got this guy who has this whole uh, marketing and uh, a team versus two people. Yeah. Uh, so I think the presentation there to the cable systems was, well, we're, we're dealing with a much bigger company, uh, as opposed to a smaller company. After pulling this stunt, a lot of the cable systems jump in and warn Vince not to put them in this position again and don't intentionally schedule pay-per-views head to head with the NWA. So two months later, Crockett presents bunkhouse stampede in January of 88, there had been many bunkhouse stampedes prior to this, but this is the first time it was on pay-per-view. And since Vince had just gotten his hand slapped for doing a head-to-head pay-per-view, he instead opts to do a free show on the USA Network head-to-head, and he called it the Royal Rumble. So for you longtime WWF fans, Survivor Series and Royal Rumble were actually created in response to Crockett shows. So stick that in your pipe and smoke it. How about that, damn it? Yeah, there you go. So, Tony, uh, when Vince did the Royal Rumble for free as an answer to Bunkhouse Stampede, how is that perceived by the office at JCP? Were folks spinning this like Vince is scared, he's nervous, or was it more the bastards trying to put us out of business? It's more the bastard trying to put us out of business. I don't think anyone uh, thought Vince was scared or nervous. Everyone kind of thought that the more you would push Vince, the more he would push back. Uh, and I think we had to show as Crockett Promotions kind of a united front and uh, you had to uh, deal from strength. So I don't think any, anyone thought Vince was scared at all, but uh, I think everyone thought that he was trying to put us out of business, so, which eventually he did, right? 
Uh, absolutely. Uh, I'm Twice. curious, though, yeah. when you're saying, you know, th- that we think he's trying to put us out of business, is the common feeling, I mean, does no, is no one delusional enough to think that they're competing or they're just as good? Or does Dusty and the Crockett's and everybody know, hey, we're playing second fiddle right now? That was never discussed. Dusty, uh, and Dusty had a, uh, a big influence on the company. And going to a cable system meeting shows you how much of an influence he had on the company. Uh, I think, uh, I don't think Dusty ever thought he was second fiddle. I think he could, thought he could compete with Vince McMahon. And, uh, and I think Jimmy Crockett and everybody bought into it. Dusty had, again, just a tremendous influence. He had, Dusty had a massive ego. Uh, yeah. And, uh, he also had a, uh, had a great business sense about him and whatever Dusty wanted back then, Dusty could get, I think everybody knew that. I think some of the shows saw that, uh, and I'm not saying it was bad. I love Dusty. I really did. But his influence was profound and whatever he felt about Vince McMahon, whatever he felt about our company, the entire company felt about it in the front office. Well, I'm not speaking for the boys. He wasn't without flaw, though. The Bunkhouse Stampede was a Dusty Rhodes creation, and I'm sure we'll cover it uh, in more detail one day. Uh, But as we mentioned, the 88 version is the first time it's presented on pay-per-view. And for the exact reason you just laid out, that Dusty had an ego and he thought he could compete and he never considered himself second fiddle, he wants to run this show in Vince's backyard. So the show happens at the Nassau Coliseum in New York and only draws six or 7,000 people. Uh, which is less than half of capacity. Uh, meanwhile, the Royal Rumble that same night drew more than 18,000. Uh, neither show was well-received, and specifically, there is a ton of backlash against the bunkhouse match itself. A lot of fans didn't like that Dusty won it again, or that the show ran short. Uh, apparently, they even printed the wrong time to start the show on the tickets uh, Tony, if this were a boxing match, wouldn't this be two rounds in a row here for the WWF with Starcade and now uh, the Bunkhouse Stampede? Yeah, it, it may have been two rounds uh, for the WWF with the second round being a a, a knockout. Uh, again, I you know you, you talk about all this and and you talk about the wars here, and I understand about all the fucking wars. I really do, and I understand about trying uh, to be the better of two, but. To me, what 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 smacks of Crockett not making it is uh, wrong time on the ticket, show running short. Yeah, those are just things that you you should not do, and those things hurt your business in the long run and make you seem second fiddle, right? Sure. You wanted to seem like you were on par with Vince, but if you can't even have the right time spent on the tickets, or you cannot even have. Uh, you you have a show that runs short, uh, you're looked upon as, well, you know, they have good wrestling, but those guys are fucked. They're fucked up. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm thinking this is part of a, we had, it was a very mom and pops business back then, a very small business, uh, understaffed greatly. Uh, Vince, uh, you know, when I went to work for Vince in 1989, I remember thinking, holy shit. This is a big time operation. Right. They have people everywhere and they are organized. They had two offices. They had a production studio. I mean, Crockett's had nothing like that. 
So in their effort to compete uh, with uh, the WWE, uh, I think going back and looking at it, and not a, a criticism of the Crockett's, who I owe certainly almost everything to, but I think I think we can say that a lot of times they put their money in the wrong place. Well, now it's time uh, for Crockett to counter-program a WWF pay-per-view, and they're going to do it against the WWF's biggest one, WrestleMania. Here we are. It's March 27th, 1988, and we're at the Greensboro Coliseum for the Clash of the Champions. Uh, Tony, after a smaller house in Chicago for Starcade and a really small house for Bunkhouse Stampede in New York, you guys are back to the birthplace of Starcade for Clash of the Champions, Greensboro. Who made the call to bring the big show back to Greensboro? Uh, that was a Crockett call. That was Damn. them saying, okay, we are going to counterpunch WrestleMania, and we're going to do it the very best way we can. And where would that be besides the Greensboro Coliseum, which is the basically the heart and soul of Jim Crockett Promotions? Crockett Promotions – uh, I mean, I guess some could say that Charlotte was because that was – and Charlotte eventually became that uh, because that was the home of Jim Crockett Promotions. Uh, but the Charlotte Coliseum back then was much smaller than the Greensboro Coliseum. Greensboro was always uh, the biggest venue in the in the Mid-Atlantic area. Uh, and they always did well, always had their biggest shows in, in the Greensboro Coliseum. So that was Jimmy Crockett's call right there to, to – if we are going to really punch back – we're going to punch back in a place where we know we will get a lot of fans and great reaction, which they did. Yeah, I, I've always found it curious as someone who, you know, admittedly doesn't know a lot about, you know, the state of North Carolina, you know, geographically. Why was Greensboro the smart play for the big shows? It seemed like to me, you know, if you're going to not be in Charlotte, maybe try Baltimore, which you guys ran a lot of shows in and, and were very successful for a long time. But I think you just answered it right there. Greensboro had a bigger arena. So even though they weren't the bigger town, didn't have more people necessarily, they had more opportunity for more butts and seats because there were more seats. You had to use that term, didn't you, you motherfucker? <laughs> um, butts in seats. Do you like that? When the hell are we going to uh, block uh, me, motherfucker? Just block me. Just block me. Get it over with. I'm blocking your ass. Um, uh, well, the Greensboro, you look, on a, on a perception level, if you're saying that we are coming with the Clash of the Champions in Los Angeles or in San Francisco or in Chicago – the big, big markets, it, wow, everyone says, wow. But, but what does that get you right. in the long run? Because you got to move everybody out there. You're going to have a smaller arena because if you're in Chicago or if you're in San Francisco at that time, you're not going to be able to run the Cow Palace. Uh, you're going to have to run the uh, San Francisco Auditorium downtown or whatever that place was. Uh, we, uh, so expense-wise, it was smart. It was smart because it was the heart of Jim Crockett Promotions. Uh, and, uh, again – it was it was a business decision as far as being able to recoup some of the uh, some of the monies that we were going to spend for putting that event on. That was smart. It was a smart decision. I, I think Greensboro was always a smart decision. Greensboro. Now I I, I can tell you this. I know the uh, the ACC is uh, much more of a nationwide conference now, but that was always the home of a, the ACC basketball tournament, and that was uh, that place was always a big deal. And big deal on on a on a national level too. Much more now 
than it used to be. I'm saying that Greensboro Coliseum, and I know I'm a redneck from uh, from the uh, from the South, but to me, Greensboro Coliseum was always one of the great venues in pro wrestling. I don't, I don't know if fans nationwide knew that, but damn it, I knew it. <laughs> it put butts in the seats, Conrad. I like it. Uh, do you think that um, you know making the decision to come back to Greensboro here is a little bit of a tail tucking move after? This national expansion has seemingly flopped. You know, San Francisco didn't draw great. Chicago didn't draw great. New York didn't draw great. Is this getting back to their roots? Is it tucking tail? Uh, or is it just a good business decision? I, I, don't, re- I don't remember San Francisco uh, and Los Angeles and some of those towns not drawing well. I went out on, on a tour with Jim Crockett Promotions uh, to uh, Las Cruces, New Mexico, uh, Albuquerque at the Tingley Coliseum. We went to uh, the uh, the Forum in Los Angeles, and we went uh, to San Francisco in the uh, the San Francisco uh, again the auditorium downtown. And we had fantastic crowds everywhere. They had me go as the ring announcer. And aside from Barry Windham getting me drunk on my ass, uh, I remember that uh, those places did did well. So I'm not so sure that you saying that uh, we did not do well in those towns because I thought we did. Now I know we do. We ran in Chicago, we ran the UIC Pavilion, and it was it was perceived that we did not get the big venues, with the exception of the Forum in Los Angeles. But I thought we did we did quite well out there. And I'm I'm, I'm talking house shows now. Yeah, uh, we did quite well out there. So, but I I don't know. I don't think it's uh, uh, a sign that we were. Uh, Tucking tail, uh, tucking our tail between our legs, type thing. I think it was a, a, a thing that we wanted that show to look and feel exciting, and Greensboro was the best place to do it. Greensboro uh, is also notable for having a young Bruce Mitchell who now writes for the Torch and a group of his friends. They used to sit in the front row and wear suits and ties. Do you remember those guys? Sure do. Uh, as a matter of fact, I, w- I would always talk to Bruce because. Uh, he had a profound uh, respect for the business. I think he was ahead of his time uh, because if you'll recall that the Clash of the Champions show, they they held up the they all dressed up like Cornette, remember? Yep. Or, and they all held up those signs for Cornette. So they were fans of the heels in a market that was very much babyface fans. Uh, babyface fans back then had a lot of females. Yeah. Uh, and now you're starting to move into the era where of the fanboy. To where they're cheering for the heels, they're cool. They hold up signs. They're part of the show. I think he was the start of that. There you go, uh, Dusty. So says, there you go, Bruce. You are the grandpappy of fanboys, or as uh, Bruce Pritchard likes to say, the Greensboro Jackoff. Um, <laughs> Isn't it something how I have a different perception of people than Bruce does? Well, Bruce hates everyone. You just block them. He hates them outwardly. He hates them outright. Well, we both love you, though, Conrad, I think, don't we? <laughs> right now. Right, uh, at least right now. This uh, this one's not even half over, and I, and I still feel very good about you. But uh, we'll see. Go ahead. Dusty says the idea for running this free show opposing Vince and WrestleMania and just the whole concept for Clash of the Champions comes to him on the ride home from the bunkhouse stampede. Uh, Crockett loved the idea, so they go pitch it to Turner Executives, and Dusty says they're on board immediately. 
who would have been the folks at Turner that Dusty and Crockett would have been dealing with at that time? And how do you remember that relationship with Turner execs being? Uh, uh, the relationship, the, the first, the person that I remember was a, was a guy named Jeff Carr who was, I think he was like an assistant program director. Uh, I always thought Jeff was a fucking idiot. Uh, but, uh, he was, he seemed to me that he, he felt like he had a lot of power that he could, uh, whatever he says would go. Uh, but the flip side of Jeff was he was a wrestling fan where no one else in Turner broadcasting was right. So he was, uh, he was our contact. He felt like he had a lot of power and I'm not so sure that he did. Uh, but, uh, I remember the relationship as being, uh, less appeased Jeff Carr because he's the only one at Turner broadcasting that really kind of likes wrestling with the exception of Ted, you know, and Ted was not hands-on back then. Uh, Dusty has admitted that this whole move is a risk and he even equated the idea uh, to giving a movie away for free and then charging for it later. Do you remember anyone at the time being against giving away a loaded card like this for free? Or was everybody on board with this idea considering what the WWF had done? Well, I think everybody was on board with the idea, but everybody was very uneasy. Well, I, not that I think. I know everybody was very uneasy about giving stuff away for free. Because uh, again, we were still, we were still old school enough to think everything that we did pointed to house show to, business. To the house show business, right? Because that's, I mean, we're talking like we're talking '88, and just five years ago, everything was house show business, right? Uh, so now we're concerned that if you see it on TV, you're not want to going to want to come out for it. And of course, the business that was the start of the business really changing right there. If you think about it. That this free show giving away Sting and Flair, uh, switching the world tag team belts, uh, and uh, that was the beginning of. I really, I guess we could point to this, this to say this was the beginning of wrestling moving from being a house show business to a TV sport. No, I would agree. I would agree totally. Uh, you're working with two uh, Hall of Famers here, Jim Ross and Bob Cottle are on this show. Uh, which in hindsight, I guess, feels like three Hall of Fame level announcers on the exact same show. And you grew up a Mid-Atlantic fan. Yeah. Uh, what was it like to work with Bob Cottle after growing up being a Bob Cottle fan? Well, it, it was a big deal, Conrad. Uh, I can tell you a story that we were, I may have told this story to you before. So if I have, keep your butt in that fucking seat and listen again. I, uh, we were in, we were in, uh, um, Spartanburg, South Carolina, and I was standing. We had those long microphones, if you'll recall. Yeah. Uh, and I was standing there on set with Bob Cottle, getting ready to do something with him. And I told him, I said, I, I said, you're you're not going to. I basically using the term that I hear a lot today. I marked out big time right there. And I told him how much of a deal it was for me to be standing next to him, and he couldn't have been any more. Uh, of a gentleman that he was at that time. Don't know, remember exactly what he said, but he made me feel at ease. Uh, and if anybody who's gone to these uh, mid-Atlantic conventions have a chance to uh, talk to Bob, you just know what a gentleman he was. Uh, and that's uh, – a lot of people uh, have sent me tweets, and I really appreciate this. Uh, and a lot of the tweets say you should be in the WWE Hall of Fame. 
And I'm not going to say anything unkind about the Hall of Fame out of any disrespect to people who are in there because all the announcers who are in there deserve to be in there. But damn it, Bob Cottle needs to be in there before anybody ever thinks about Tony Schiavone going to the Hall of Fame. Lord Albert Hayes needs to be there before anybody ever thinks about Tony Schiavone going to the Hall of Fame. And there's other announcers who be there. Bob Cottle was one of the greats in the sport. If you go back and listen to some of the old Mid-Atlantic stuff that he did, it was tremendous because he put the talent over. He made these guys seem bigger than life without drawing attention to himself. It was kind of like an umpire. Right. The best umpires in the business are the ones that you don't realize you were there. And all of a sudden after the game, you say, yeah, that's a great fucking game. Because the umpires call a great game and they are not the center of attention. To me, Bob Cottle was one of the greats of all time. And that, being able to work with Bob Cottle, really is kind of like, uh, and fans who are in Georgia can understand this. Uh, when I first got the chance to work with Larry Munson at UGA, when I first got a chance to work with Skip Carey and Pete Van Weeren and the Braves Network, big deals for me. I mean, big moments in my life, Cottle and working with those guys. Uh, the other guy uh, in the booth is Jim Ross. Uh, Jim Ross had uh, been a part of this UWF purchase. He helped put that whole deal together for Crockett. Uh, so I'm curious, did he have any other duties with the organization by this point, or was he strictly on air? He worked out of Dallas, and I worked out of Charlotte. So I don't know what his duties were during the, the course of the week. Uh, Jim and I would get together uh, back then. And uh, we would room together because he would come in from Dallas and I would be from Charlotte. And we would go to Atlanta and we were there to be we would tape uh, Saturday night. We would tape uh, the main event, uh, NWA main event wrestling. And we would be there like uh, for a couple of days and then go back home and come back like a week later and do it again. So I don't know what his jobs were uh, back that time, but I know he was very influential in the business. Uh, Jim was very influential with Jim Crockett Promotions because Jim had a great mind for the business. And believe you me, he could talk the pants off anybody. Nobody could talk as well as Jim Ross could talk uh, off off the air and on the air. He was he was delightful in many ways. I envied him uh, the way he could talk, the way he, the, the confidence that he had about himself. So uh, as far as the duties that he had, I'm not so sure because he was in the Dallas office. Well, we're in Greensboro now. Let's get going. Our first match is the world right. television title. It's uh, Mike Rotundo, who's our champ, with the games master, Kevin Sullivan. And he's taking on gorgeous Jimmy Garvin with Precious in an amateur rules match. Our referee for this match is the new WWE Hall of Famer, Teddy Long. Of course, Kevin Sullivan would go on to become a critical part of WCW's booking committee. And uh, Garvin actually went in the Hall of Fame last year as a free bird. Uh, meanwhile, Mike Rotundo is an agent with the WWE now, and his son, Bray Wyatt, is their world champion. Um, briefly explain, Tony, to our younger listeners, what the hell is the Varsity Club? Well, you've never been in the Varsity Club? <laughs> I was in the Varsity Club at Buffalo Gap High School. Varsity Club was always legitimately uh, a, a letterman's club for anybody that lettered in a sport in their high school, or maybe in their, uh, I know there was a varsity club in my high school. Anybody lettered in the sport would become a part of the varsity club and there would be an initiation. So you would have a school background, and uh, Rick Steiner was from Michigan, 
Uh, Rotunda was from Syracuse. Uh, and then later on, Dr. Dusty Williams being from Oklahoma. So it would be guys who, who we talked about having a strong amateur wrestling background who had lettered in their, uh, in their sport and wore the letter jackets to the ring. So they were members of the varsity club. And at a lot of schools, even more as you, as you moved into the future, but at schools, the varsity club had a lot of heat because they were seen as the elite uh, jocks, the elite jocks who got the cheerleaders and were cool where everyone else wasn't. So that's what the varsity club was about. Uh, and of course, uh, Kevin Sullivan would become the taskmaster and the leader of the dungeon of doom for WCW, but we're still in 1988. So Tony, what the hell is a games master? Uh, the games master. I remember talking to Kevin about this. I think he drew this and I never did play it. I think he drew this from dungeons and dragons. The person that was in charge of the game. Did you ever play Dungeons and Dragons? No, I didn't even know that. I didn't even know that Games Master was a reference to that. Yeah, it was. Okay. And whether it was accurate or not, I don't know. But that's what he he viewed himself, the guy who was in charge of it. And he thought that by calling himself the Games Master, that uh, he would have a connect with the the nerds that – uh, played Dungeons and Dragons, uh, the pre-Conrad Thompson kids. Yeah, you got to check this out in your Google machine. Apparently, the Games Master became a television show from 92 to 98. I wish I hadn't seen that. Uh, the storyline here is that Kevin Sullivan is trying to capture the affections of Garvin's valet, Precious. And yes. this continues through the Great American Bash. Let's talk about the uh, amateur rules stuff for this match. It seems kind of hokey. You have uh, five-minute periods, and a one-count works for a pin. Uh, the first period goes five minutes, uh, with Rotundo taking a powder every time he suffers a takedown. And the second period, Sullivan goes after Precious, which distracts Jimmy, and Rotundo rolls him up for the pin and a one-count by our referee, Teddy Long. Uh, so let's talk about Teddy Long. Uh, he starts with JCP sweeping the floors. He becomes a ring attendant, uh, then a referee, a manager, and then eventually a general manager for SmackDown, and now he's in the Hall of Fame. You got any good Teddy Long stories? Teddy and I got along quite well. I, I think if if we could, if it, I don't know if you can find him because there were a lot of the local interviews that we did. But I thought Teddy Long and I had a great rapport. Teddy was like me. We both loved uh, the television show In Living Color, and we both loved Homie the Clown, uh, which is still one of my favorite characters of all time. And Teddy used to turn to me, had a great voice, said, homie, don't play that, Shivani, and you know what I mean. Uh, so t- anything that Teddy Long uh, gets and has gotten, he, had, he has deserved. You just said he went from sweeping the floors to a ring attendant to a referee, a manager, and a, a damn good talker, and now to the Hall of Fame. Uh, I had a great rapport with Teddy. I, I would I would have loved to have had Teddy be a color man for me, I think we would have been very good together. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to argue that the dude has not been around a long time and done everything uh, and seemingly well liked by almost everyone. Uh, whose idea is it to start the match or start this show with an amateur rules match? Does that not seem a little weird to you in hindsight or did this varsity club angle have enough heat and enough momentum that this amateur rules thing could still be effective. I don't think it was weird at all. I think it was something different. 
uh, take a look at, at what we had. We had a world title match. We had a barbed wire match. And we had an amateur rules match. Uh, and also, I think that was something that was kind of built up on TV and uh, was also pointing towards the house shows. Um, so I don't think that was weird at all. Something different instead of just match after match after match. And Why not? In your opinion, and maybe I'm alone on this, do you agree okay. that Jimmy Garvin is very, very underrated? Oh, my God. Absolutely. Absolutely. Jimmy Garvin, Jimmy Garvin would, could work as a heel or a baby face. Uh, and, uh, I don't think there's any question. And I, I just, and not only that, I just love precious. She was beautiful. She was a nice lady. They were, they were a very strong, they had, they had a family and, uh, Jimmy was great. Jimmy, Jimmy cut some tremendous promos. Um, one of the, you know, and he was a pilot too. You know that still is still is a pilot, but he also, and I, uh, I made the mistake. I shouldn't say made the mistake. I made the mistake one time of flying back from Atlanta to Charlotte with he and Precious, and I think Ronnie Garvin was on the plane, and there was a thunderstorm, and we were bouncing up and down, and I remember thinking I'm going to fucking die, and he was just <laughs> he was just so calm in the uh, in the cockpit in his plane at that time, uh, but uh, I, a great promo, and, and this is a much Arn Anderson story as it is a Jimmy Garvin story. Uh, we were doing all those promos in the back, and we would do one after another, after another, after another. There was one night to where they had they were running Greensboro the same night they were running the Lynchburg Armory. And the main event at the Lynchburg Armory was uh, the Kansas Jayhawks, Dutch Mantell, and Bobby Jaggers against Arn Anderson and gorgeous Jimmy Garvin with Precious. And gorgeous, and it was one of the great promos of all that I've ever done. Uh, I bring in gorgeous Jimmy Garvin with Precious, and he's you know she's fluffing up his hair, and you know she always did kind of uh, she was just gorgeous to work with, and uh, fluffing up his hair. So Arn walks in, and Arn says, "Okay, let me get this straight. All the big names of our business are in Greensboro, running the big show, and you and I have to go to Lynchburg." to wrestle a man with a throw rug on his back and a flapjack wino. And Jimmy Garvin said, don't worry about it, double A. I'm going to have the plane ready to go. We're going to fly in. We're going to win the match. And we're going to fly out. And Anderson said, I hope there's a lot of whiskey on that plane. And we fade to black. That, to me, I, and I, we laughed for a long t- So long after that, we, it, uh, we had to uh, wait a few minutes before we did our next one. That's awesome. So, uh, so every time I see Art Anderson, I say, uh, you ever talk to that flak Jack Wino? But I guess, uh, Bobby Jaggers has since passed on. You uh, know that? yeah, I believe so. I think yeah. you're accurate there. Anyway, so there's a story, but yeah, back to your thing. Uh, uh, he was, Jimmy Garvin could do anything. Great worker. And he had, uh, he had, uh, some, uh, pretty good run with Ric Flair as well. Uh, it's a melee after the match. Precious, uh, knocks out varsity club member, Rick Steiner with a two by four. And then, uh, is choking Sullivan with a coat hanger. Meltzer gives this bout two and a half stars. what do you think of the match? Uh, I, I thought the match was okay. I thought the heat after was tremendous. Uh, and, uh, I think early in that match, unfortunately, uh, 
we saw the two by four. So we knew that was going to be, I, I think that was inadvertent that the, the camera shot the two by four down at, uh, down at rings. I think Sullivan had it in his hand. So you knew it was going to be a part of it. I think uh, her trying to choke him out with the, uh, with the, uh, coat hanger was, uh, was a lot of heat. Uh, next uh, up we get, uh, Dr. Death, Steve Williams. He's doing yeah. a promo here with Bob Cottle. He talks about returning from a tour of Japan and starts challenging Ric Flair and offering his support for dusty roads. Uh, what do you think of this promo, Tony? It's worth mentioning here before you address it, that, uh, Dr. Death received the worst interview award in the 1988 wrestling observer newsletter awards this year. Yeah. Uh, I don't know who all did interviews in 1988, so I, I can't, uh, you know, I can't judge that. But he he was not a good interview, and and in his defense, no one coached people in doing interviews back then. You know, if you were Doctor Death Steve Williams and you were going to do an interview at the Clash of the Champions, they would probably say, "Once you go out and talk about Flair, once you go talk about Dusty, and go on out there and give it your best." That's all they did back then. So these guys were uncoaching. He wasn't that great of a talker. I understand that. But uh, I thought, and I know something that we're going to get to a little bit later, I thought it was a better interview than Nikita's that came up a little bit later. Oh, yeah. Well, it's hard to go yeah. any worse than that. Obviously, uh, Dr. Death was a top guy for Bill Watts with the UWF. Huge favorite of both Watts and Ross. Right. But he never really did a lot with JCP. Do you think that... There was a missed opportunity here, maybe some money left on the table. He never really had a, a significant program with Flair. Do you know why that is? Maybe it's because they thought he he was uh he did not have enough. I you know, I maybe he wasn't that you, you had to be a good talker back then, I I think, to be able to be a main eventer. I mean, you had to work and he wasn't he was a pretty good worker. Oh, phenomenal, but, yeah. Yeah, he was uh, he was good, so but the fact that uh, he he didn't have that good of rap maybe held him back. You know, uh, Watts and Ross liked him because they liked legitimate tough guys, and he was a legitimate badass tough guy. Uh, and uh, why he didn't uh, get his push, I don't know. There was there was back then, and I don't think Dusty was a part of that. But there was there was a back then. Uh, once the UWF was a part of Jim Crockett promotions, there was, there was a little inner feud between the Charlotte office and the Dallas office. Uh, I'm not going to say it could have been the boys. I don't know. It could have been the boys that were from Charlotte and the boys that were from the, the old Watts territory. But I know in the front office, we always kind of, you know, kind of looked on the, the Dallas people as, uh, I don't know what I'm trying to say here is our uh, rivals, our rivals, competition. Thank you. Uh, I don't know if that played into Dr. Death not getting a push or not. Could have. Our second match is for the United States Tag Team Championship, uh, which seems like a waste of a title, but we'll cover that another time. Uh, in it, we have the Midnight Express with beautiful Bobby Eaton and sweet Stan Lane. In their corner, of course, is Jim Cornette. They're the champs. And they're taking on the challengers of the Fantastics, which are made up of Tommy Rogers and Bobby Fulton. Uh, and this match is worth going out of your way to see. The Fantastics have essentially just stepped in here and taken over for the Rock and Roll Express, who had just left the territory. And before the match even gets started, there's a big brawl with tables and chairs. 
the Midnights really put a beating on Rogers in the match. And at least for me, Tony, this seemed a little unusual or maybe out of place that we see guys using tables like this uh, in Jim Crockett. And this is before, you know, the whole Terry Funk, Rick Flair, pile driver deal and a long time before ECW. Uh, and I find it interesting watching this back now because years later you hear guys from this era like, you know, Cornette become very critical of using props like tables and chairs. But here they're using them in Jim Crockett in 88. What did you think of using these gimmicks with tables and such back then? And what do you think watching it back now? Well, first of all, it was a tremendous match. It's like you said, it's worth a watch going yeah. back and seeing that. Uh, because you had four guys that could work. You had, uh, with uh, along with Bobby Heenan, one of the great managers of the business, and Jim Cornette, uh, there was tremendous heat after that with the strap. Uh, let me say this. Cornette may have been critical of using gimmicks like tables and chairs. I think I know where Jim's coming from, and I'm going to agree with him here. If you use it sporadically like they did, then it means something. If you use it just to use as a high spot and keep using it over and over and over, pretty soon those tables and chairs don't mean shit. But using it right there, uh, showing how hot that angle was, to me, worked. Uh, and it worked to use it some, but not use it all the time, not being the hallmark of your business. And uh, I like the way they use it. It helped with the heat of that match. And, and again, it's one of the uh, great tag team matches that we ever had on the Clash of the Champions, and it was on our first one. Uh, a false finish occurs when Cornette hits the wrong guy with his tennis racket and Bobby Fulton tosses uh, referee Randy Anderson over the top rope. And, man, Pee Wee is really sporting some hellacious hair here. Worth going out of your way to see. Yeah. Um, Fulton then pins Eaton after 10 minutes and 20 seconds. And Tommy Young uh, has quickly entered the ring to replace Anderson as the referee and make the count. So it looks like the Fantastics win the titles here. But, of course, the Midnight Express retain as the sanctioned referee, Randy Anderson, did not make the count. So uh, after the bout, uh, the bad guys whipped up on the Fantastics with Cornette using his belt as a weapon for part of the beatdown, really laying some licks in. Uh, And this result does lead to the Fantastic winning the straps a few weeks later. Meltzer give this match uh, four and a quarter stars. I should mention here that this feud with the Fantastics and the Midnight Express actually won the 1988 Wrestling Observer Newsletter Feud of the Year Award. The Midnights won the Tag Team of the Year for 88, and Cornette won both Manager of the Year and Best Interviews of the Year. So lots of noteworthy stuff here happening. Everybody agrees these guys know how to put on a great match. But let's talk about the finish, Tony. Uh, fans have grown to refer to this scenario where a baby face seemingly wins the belt and then has the decision reversed as the dusty finish. Do you think that name is fair considering how often dusty used it? Do you think he used it too much? What's your feelings on the, the quote unquote dusty finish? I think the term dusty finish is a term that we feel you and I, you being a fan and me being inside the business at that time is a is a term that we feel was a nationwide term and that's bullshit. That's an inside term. Yeah. Uh I, I don't think they uh they just I don't think the term dusty finish I don't think the fans who watch that event live or on TV sit right there in their chairs and say, Oh shit, this is another dusty finish. 
I think what they got in that match was tremendous heat. And with them wanting to see these two teams wrestle again, which is basically why that finish was put in place. You got them getting screwed over by the referee. And I, we, I had seen this type of match before where another referee comes in and the other referee throws it out because of a disqualification. The fans are upset. They're mad about the finish. And then when they whip the, uh, the fantastic with, with the belt, they are even madder. So they want to see them wrestle again. You know, you, you can't always, you can't always have a clean finish. If you have a clean finish, then where do you go from there? Right. So, uh, I, I'm kind of defending the quote unquote dusty finish in this. And let me also say this, uh, I agree with, uh, Cornette being manager of the year. And I agree with Cornette being best interviewer of the year. Uh, and the Midnight Express being the tag team of the year. I, I, I agree with all that. But we are talking about Meltzer as if he is the final word in the business. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, you know, okay, great. Yeah, that's your fucking opinion. Um, <laughs> other people didn't see that. Uh, and I agree with a lot that Dave Meltzer had to say and a lot I didn't agree with. And, and a lot of slap dicks out there, you may be in one. Mm. One of them uh, probably thought everything that he said was like the gospel. Uh, and I'm not so sure that is always the case. So uh, in, in your opinion, uh, Wrestler of the Year is is a title that Pro Wrestling Illustrated should issue, but not Dave Meltzer? No. I'm just saying that uh, the Wrestler of the Year should be taken with a grain of fucking salt. It's somebody's opinion. I, well, all of wrestling it is, is someone's opinion. opinion. It is one man's opinion who had enough intelligence and forethought to write his stuff down and to cover it and bring out a newsletter, which back in those days, even before then, attempted to expose the business. Uh, that's fine. I, you know, A lot of the stuff that he wrote I, I, I enjoy and I agree with. A lot of the stuff I didn't agree with, but you're reading it here like it's uh, coming out of the uh, out of the New Testament. Uh, and a lot of the times being an observer doesn't mean that you know what's best for the business. And I think that even though this may be have seen a dusty business, a dusty finish, they, they got out of it what they wanted. They got tremendous heat. And as you said, didn't the uh, Fantastics uh, win the uh, U.S. Tag Team Championship down the road out of that? Yeah. So there you go. Uh, I don't you know. Always, you can't always give them a clean finish. You can't. Uh, at least back then, you couldn't. If you want to come back for business, it goes to the thing. And I and Ole Anderson used to say it all the time. He said, "Eventually, you put wrestler A against wrestler B, and he beats wrestler B, and then wrestler B turns around and beats wrestler A, and you show it. Pretty soon, you're going to run out of shit to show if you have all these clean finishes." And he's right. He's absolutely right. Was. I don't know when we'll talk about the Fantastics again, but they were a great tag team who probably don't get uh, enough credit today. Why don't you think they were more successful with JCP? Because I think they followed the Rock and Roll Express. Yeah. To me, the Rock and Roll Express, and it's not easy. I, I, Bobby Fulton and uh, uh, rest in peace Tommy Rogers were a great tag team, had a great look. But let's face it, uh, 
There was no babyface team like the Rock and Roll Express back in the 80s, and they followed them. It was it was a hard act to follow. So I think that's the reason. So there you go. You know, you were talking about tables and chairs, Conrad, uh, which apparently you love seeing tables and chairs. Love seeing a lot of it. I don't love seeing a lot of it. I love it sporadically. Well, Conrad and our listeners out there, you do not have to go through any tables or chairs to get your very own championship belt. And remember, if you want one size extra large like Conrad and I wear, they are available. You just go to leatherbydan.com and you'll see lots of belts available right now. But maybe the coolest thing about leatherbydan.com is that you can create your very own custom belt for only $9.99. Conrad's got one, and it says, I believe everything that Dave Meltzer says on it. For less than $1,000, you can get a custom three-plate nickel championship belt to your exact specifications over at leatherbydan.com. Dan, hello, Dan. Glad you're listening. Dan offers free shipping. A custom belt in as little as 10 weeks. 10 weeks. And he even takes payments plans. If you enjoy the show, we certainly hope you do. Please support our sponsor and get Dan off my ass. Dan was our very first one. Dan, <laughs> check out leathersbydan.com. He's a good buddy of ours. And be sure to click our WHW logo with this special offer. That's leatherbydan.com. How was that, Reed? Was that good? Roll Tide. And I think Dan will be happy because you did this one. I think he will, too. I don't know where the fucking Roll Tide came out of that, but I think, uh, is, is Dan a, a, a Bama fan, too? Uh, no, but Dan is a fan of all Conrad Thompson podcasts, Roll Tide. <laughs> so, got that going for me. Uh, Cornette does, uh, I guess, a little bit of a comedy spot. It's a pre-taped segment with Eddie Haskell of the new Leave it to Beaver television show, which TBS brought back in 86. Uh, to me, Tony, this shows that Turner understands the size of the audience and they want to try to capitalize on this wrestling product audience and use it as an opportunity to grow some of their other stuff. Uh, any other memories of times where Turner maybe said, Hey, can you guys help us cross promote this or that? Uh, I know we're seeing it here with leave it to beaver, but right. Were there other opportunities like this with Turner? Yeah, I, 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 if you're a fan of, uh, of the old Saturday night show, when we uh, first took over from the WWF, you may recall the late, great Craig Sager, Sager would come out, uh, with me and he, uh, he would bring out, I remember, uh, he brought out Tommy Lasorda again, promoting, you know, Braves baseball. Uh, he brought out Dale Brown, the, uh, LSU head coach, you know, promoting basketball. So they did a lot of that. I think, uh, I also think that this could have been with Eddie Haskell. I thought that the Cornette interview should have run before their match. I agree totally. It seems out of yeah. place here. Out of place. But it was pretty good. It was, it was a very good ad lib because Cornette was, was the master of ad lib. Uh, but it should have been before the match. And I also got to thinking back then, uh, you know, I'm not so sure that the, the guys at Turner were smart enough to cross-promote shit. And that may have been Dusty or Jimmy Crockett saying – Hey, if you let us have this, we'll help promote a show. Uh, and they said, probably said, probably got their finger out of their ass and said, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Uh, so I'm going to credit Dusty and Jimmy with the idea of cross-promoting uh, more than I am Turner. Because let's face it, we wanted to be a national promotion, and Eddie Haskell was a Hollywood guy, and 
That was important to us to have that. The the biggest, most notable cross promotion, at least in my mind, was RoboCop. And we got lots <laughs> of requests to talk about RoboCop. Um, will we talk about RoboCop on the show here? Uh, right now? No, anytime in the future. If you want to, we'll talk about RoboCop. That was like my first big event back. Yeah, that's what I can't wait to talk about. So if you'd like to hear any stories about RoboCop... Uh, go ahead and follow us on Twitter at WHW Monday. We'd love yeah. to hear. Uh, next up, Gary Hart. Can, I, can I say this? Yeah. That was the event in Washington, D.C., where one line kept going through my head. And it was, what the fuck am I doing back here? <laughs> and it stayed with me the entire show. Go ahead. Where are we here? Gary Hart introduces the world to Al Perez, who says he is uh, targeting Dusty Rhodes' U.S. title. Al Perez looks like uh, he stars in an 80s porn film here. Uh, you yeah. got anything good on Gary or Perez you want to share? Al Perez, nice guy. You're exactly right. 80 porn, 80s porn star. Gary, Gary Hart was one of the first managers that I ever interviewed uh, back when we were doing the old Crockett, promotion, uh, old Crockett uh, interviews. Back in the uh, back in the garage or back in their makeshift studios, uh, and Gary was tremendous, absolutely a great talker, very very supportive of uh, of my work. He uh, he helped me through things. Uh, he was very smart in the business. Uh, he passed away a number of years ago, and I have a fond memory of him because he was very helpful in starting my career because he was such a good talker, and he he took an interest in me. And took an interest in what I was doing. So anytime we would have a break, he and I would discuss the uh, baby faces and heels. And as we say, the psychology of the business. Like Gary Hart a lot. Always wondered what happened to him. You know, I stay out of touch with people, but Gary was a, was a good guy to work with. I think we all agree that he, that he was a great talker. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, next up, we got a segment from uh, Francis Crockett. And Francis didn't make a lot of television appearances. And during this segment, we see why uh, she shows us the top 10 seeds of the Jim Crockett Senior Memorial Cup. And uh, she lists them all. Number 10 was Ivan Koloff and Dick Murdoch. Number nine, Sting and Ronnie Garvin. Number eight, the Varsity Club. Number seven, the Fantastics. Number six, Barry Windham and Lex Luger. Number five, the Powers of Pain. Number four, the Midnight Express. Number three, Dusty Rhodes. I'm sorry, number three, Road Warriors. Number two, Dusty Rhodes and Nikita Koloff. And number one, Tully Blanchard and Arn Anderson. Uh, what did Francis do for Jim Crockett Promotions by 1988? Well, by 1988, she was no longer in baseball. They had sold the team, uh, I believe. Uh, I may be wrong about that. My last year with her as a baseball announcer was 85. So I think by 88, she may have... She may have sold the team. I should know the exact day, but right now I don't give a fuck. Uh, but she worked in marketing for Jim Crockett Promotions. Uh, also, she worked back then. They tried. They attempted. And I don't know if this was the right year or not, but she attempted for Jim Crockett Promotions to get insurance for the boys uh, and and run that program. Uh, so she worked in the front office. Uh Back at that time, one of the reasons I remember she worked in the office back at that time was uh, in uh, a year later or a year in 1987, we had uh, we had already had three kids 
and uh, she had that front office in Jim Crockett Promotions. And so in 19, late in 1986, I went, I knocked on her door and I said, Francis, I need to talk to you. And she said, what is it? And I sat down, I said, and we had three kids. Okay. First one was Matt born in 82, Laurie born in 84, Chris born in 85, three of them, three young kids. And I sat down and I said, uh, Lois is pregnant with twins. And she went, oh shit. And I said, you're not kidding. So I need a raise. And and she laughed, and we had a good time about that. But she, she worked in marketing and uh, and promotions that time. And I'm not so sure how much experience Frances had, but I do know she had plenty of success in running a baseball team. So that's why she was put in that position. Because if you have success in running the minor league baseball team, you have a plenty of, of experience in marketing and promotions. Third match on the card is our United States champion, Dusty Rhodes, and the Road Warriors, with Paul Ellering taking on the Powers of Pain, which made up uh, Warlord and the Barbarian. They had Paul Jones in tow, and Ivan Koloff joins them in a barbed wire match. Tony, can you imagine a barbed wire match airing on television in 2017? That just seems so far-fetched now. I mean, this yeah. that lets you know how, how long ago this was. Any fun yeah. memories you can share about barbed wire matches for Jim Crockett? Well, it shows you how television has changed, right? If you say, can you imagine a barbed wire match uh, in, in 2017? Uh, I love barbed wire matches because I love to see guys bleed. And, you know, there's a lot of a lot of those – a lot of the blood that you saw in, in barbed wire matches back then was blood the hard way. Do you understand what I'm saying by that? Yes, sir. Okay. They actually would cut themselves on the barbed wire. Instead of having to blade themselves, and I think if you'll recall, in that match there was even blood in that match. But back then, and even as we got even further, uh, they would uh, they would pull away when you saw blood uh, uh, to the point to where in this match, JCP and Dusty took a lot of heat from the Turner people about having blood on TV. Because there was some blood in that match. Love barbed wire matches, though. Loved it. Uh, this match is set up from an angle where the Powers of Pain and the Russians had dropped a barbell on Animal during a weightlifting challenge competition on TV. Uh, so Animal wore a protective hockey mask as a face guard here in the match. And Dusty Rhodes wore the Road Warrior paint. Uh, the barbed wire wasn't utilized a lot in the match, but Dusty still bled like crazy, which was hardly a surprise. Uh, you know the, why, can I say this? Do you know why Dusty a lot of times bled like crazy and a lot of times these guys would bleed like crazy? Sometimes it was because because they couldn't help but to. Because if you do enough blade jobs on your forehead, a lot of times you just get slapped. You're going to start bleeding. Yeah. Uh, sometimes the blood was inadvertent. I'm not saying it was here, but that's just the way it was in the business. Sometimes guys bled because the skin and the scar marks on their forehead – we're so thin, they just take a, hit, a blow to the head or a head to the turnbuckle, and you open up a cut. Uh, Barbarian goes for a flying headbutt and hits the Warlord by mistake, giving the good guys the win after an animal power slam. After the match, the bad guys have a remarkable recovery and rip off Animal's mask and start attacking him. Meltzer gives the match uh, a less than stellar review at just one star. And Tony, fair or not, a lot of fans believed at this point, Dusty Rhodes was past his prime and, uh, they don't 
really see him in this top position. So they pushed back when he won the bunkhouse stampede, and now he's here uh, seemingly riding the coattails of the road warriors. That's what a lot of smart fans are going to say to try to piggyback their momentum, even going so far as to paint his face. Do you remember at this time there being significant unhappiness or resentment towards dusty for seemingly finding a way to put himself in a featured position or is that all sour grapes and his big crowd reactions warranted the push that he's giving himself? Well, uh, the old uh, the old thought back then was that a lot of times bookers who were also wrestlers would put themselves over because they knew what they wanted to do. Right. They didn't have to explain to anybody else. It was easy to put themselves over or put themselves in the feature event because they didn't have to explain it. They just did it. And that was uh, – I can remember uh, there were a lot of unhappiness. But not many people spoke out about it, but Tully Blanchard did. And I remember we were uh, we were leaving the bunkhouse stampede at the Nassau Coliseum, and I was in the limousine with Tully and Arn, and I guess Flair was there too. And there was a lot of grumbling going on, as well as a lot of drinking. We were heading to the Hemsley Palace, and this was right after Dusty put himself over the bunkhouse stampede. Do you remember that? Yep. When everyone, and even me, and I was the ring announcer that night, uh, even I thought that Luger should go over because Luger's looked like to be our next big star. So if Luger's going to be our next big star, to me it was logical that he would go over, but Dusty went over and won the boot. And uh, I and I'm not going to get the wording right, but I remember asking Tully, I said, "What what what's what's everybody so pissed off about?" And he says, "I think that Dusty Rhodes should book himself against Dusty Rhodes so he can put himself over against himself." And he can go fuck himself. Something like that. Uh, that's what I remember it being verbalized on the way back. Uh, so, yeah, there was a lot of unhappiness at that time. There was no doubt about it. Uh, I thought putting uh, himself over in the Buckhouse Stampede and not Luger, to me, seemed kind of out of place. But, you know, uh, unlike you and Dave Meltzer, I don't think I was an expert in the business at that time. Well, I was uh, I was six, so I was not well, see, an expert. See, I knew there was a six-year-old prick in Alabama second-guessing everything <laughs> that we did. I knew that. Uh, we should take a minute here and talk about the greatness that was Ivan Koloff. Uh, he recently just passed away. Any fun memories of working with Ivan you can share, Tony? Ivan was one of the great guys of all time. Ivan was kind of like uh, Baron Von Raschke, where the persona that you saw and the voice that you heard were completely different than the real person. Uh, and absolutely one of the nicest men uh, in the world. Uh, one of those guys that, and he, another one was Lee Marshall, that when they passed away, I felt very badly that I didn't get a chance to talk to them later in their lives. And that was uh, that was my fault. Uh, but uh, I can remember I was doing, I did a lot of ring announcing, which I really loved. Uh, and I'm thinking that we were in, was on that West coast tour that I'll never forget. I think maybe we were in the forum in LA and Ivan and Nikita were wrestling in a tag team match. And I usually, I never had a cue card. Uh, I usually remembered the guy's weights, uh, and usually could just bull, bullshit my way through. And I said, and in this corner, uh, at a combined weight, 
And I, all of a sudden I had like a brain fart and I said, combined weight of 950 pounds, <laughs> Ivan and Nikita Koloff. Well, Ivan came up to me and cut this, this Russian promo in my face. And I went down, uh, I went down and sat down, uh, at ringside, uh, with the guy who was, uh, ringing the bell. And every time Ivan would come over to me, he would say, we don't weigh 900 pounds. He kept that story in line with me and him going throughout the entire match. Uh, but he was a great guy. He really was missing. Uh, and you know, he was uh, one of the great uh, heels of all time. Oh, for sure. I mean, uh, not only for us, but a former WWF uh, heavyweight champion. Have you ever seen the, uh, uh, the match, any of the footage of he and uh, well, I guess he dropped the strap to Pedro Morales, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You ever seen footage of that? No. Uh, it's, it's great. I'll tell you why it's great. Because Pedro, you know, was, was big in New York City at that time. And when, when Pedro won the strap, all the policemen, and I guess they did this for all the big matches, all the policemen jumped up and uh, the apron of the ring would, uh, would uh, ring the apron of the ring looking out at the crowd to keep everybody out. And it made it look like a big time event. It's worth seeing. I saw that a number of years ago. Uh, back when I when I worked for the WWE for one year, I, I did videos, uh, Coliseum videos. And a lot of times in my spare time, I would just go back and put in tapes and watch old footage. And I watched that match, and I watched a lot of the old TNTs. I'm I'm really really uh, I'm really big into that stuff. I mean, I'm talking about 70s and and 60s and 80 stuff. I mean, I really am. Uh, and I saw a lot of great stuff of Ivan Koloff back when he was younger. Uh, good man. Great man. Found the Lord, I guess, later in his life, which was great. Uh, Next and, up, uh, we've got somebody else who found the Lord, Nikita Koloff. He's back in, in an interview segment with Bob Cottle, and he's sporting a new haircut, Tony. Yeah, uh, he's uh, talking about being gone for a little bit and speaking to youth about yeah. their health during his absence. Uh, what did you think of this look, this promo, and were you in favor of a babyface Nikita? No, I was not. Uh, Nikita, I think Nikita was our best heel, maybe the best heel in the business back then. Uh, and I understand they they turned Nikita babyface because of Magnum TA's wreck. And they moved him into that spot. I remember when he turned babyface. It was in the Charlotte Coliseum. And uh, there was a cage. And Dusty was being beaten up by the horseman. And Nikita came in. Was right after Magnum had his, uh, had his wreck. Nikita came in. He kind of looked around. Everybody thought that he was going to help Dust, uh, help Dust or help the horseman uh, jump Dusty. And he helped Dusty. There was a tremendous reaction at the Charlotte Coliseum that night. And I remember Jimmy Crockett, because we were in the back, Jimmy Crockett says, man, that was one of the best things I've ever seen. It made my eyes water. And it, me, it, it, it was very emotional for all of us because of what happened to Magnum and because the old storyline is and the old adage was the best time to turn a heel babyface is when a heel is red hot. And that, that worked that night. Uh, and, of course, Nikita went on to have the uh, Starcade match with Ric Flair. But as we moved on, he had a different look. And because of that voice that Nikita used, it worked as a heel, but it didn't work as a baby face. And if you recall that interview, I didn't think that interview was good. It was kind of jumbled and mixed up. He didn't understand what he was saying. He was talking so fast because Nikita had really worked on his heel persona 
and had not really had that much time to work on his babyface persona. Uh, and I just think as a result of Magnum's wreck, the turn when it happened was right. But as we went down the road, we lost a great heel. Uh, and I thought that was wrong. Next up is our semi-main event, and this time it's for the NWA World Tag Team titles. Tully Blanchard and Arn Anderson are defending their championship titles with James J. Dillon, and they're taking on Lex Luger and Barry Windham. And this happens not long after Luger had been kicked out of the Four Horsemen, so Lex is seeking his revenge here, and he starts like a house of fire, man. He gets Blanchard in the torture rack finisher in like a minute in. So when Wyndham hits the ring, uh, he nearly takes care of Blanchard himself uh, with a clothesline and a sleeper. Uh, and then the horseman manages to take over briefly, and uh, Wyndham takes the brunt of their attack. Uh, the crowd goes nuts when Barry finally makes the hot tag to Lex, and then the total package dominates with vicious clotheslines. And uh, things look bleak for the horseman. That is until JJ gets on the ring apron with a steel chair. But lo and behold, Arn gets thrown into the chair and the baby faces win the straps after nine and a half minutes to a huge, huge pop. This is worth seeing just for the crowd reaction. Uh, you guys even remark on commentary that the roof at the Greensboro Coliseum may have been blown off. Wow. Uh, a couple Talk weeks about overhyping shit, huh? Well, it's the greatest night in the history of our sport. Not yet. Uh, <laughs> a couple of weeks later. Anything else? Were there butts in the seats? We already did that one. I'm getting all your shit in. Some bitch. Of course, uh, we get a rematch. uh, And when that happens, uh, Wyndham turns on Luger and joins the Horsemen. And the titles go back to Arn and Tully. But this is a fantastic Clash of the Champions match. Uh, Meltzer gives it uh, four and a half stars. Uh, Tony, how would this uh, Greensboro pop here rank? I know there were lots of great moments for Greensboro and Jim Crockett promotions, but this has to be one of the top pops ever there, right? Uh, Well, yeah, and uh, let me say that I saw a lot of events in Greensboro that were not televised back when I was a fan. I saw a lot of great flair and steamboat matches. Uh, I saw the the NWA World Tag Team Championship Tournament back in the 70s when Paul Jones and Ricky Steamboat won that. Tremendous pop. But this was as, as this was as good as it uh, as it gets because you know the fans in Greensboro realized, you know what we were doing. I think, and they were on TV, and you know Luger was a was a hot baby face. Barry Windham was a tremendous worker. Uh, you had uh, maybe three of the best heels in the business, Arn Tully and JJ. So it was a great pop, but it was a great pop because it was a great finish, uh, worked by uh, you know. A bunch of guys who knew how to work. Rick often says that he believes the greatest tag team he ever worked with was Arn and Tully. Of course, he's biased. Uh, right. What say you? Where do you rank Arn and Tully all time? Uh, they're probably, to me, top three, along with the uh, Rock and Roll Express and the Midnight Express, either version of the Midnight Express, either uh, Dennis Condry or Stan Lane, uh, and then Arn and Tully. Those are the top three tag teams, to me, of all time. Uh, and but, put them and put them where you want. Okay, you can put Arn and Tully number one. You can put Rock and Roll Express number one. You can put Midnight Express number one. And maybe Midnight Express is number one because uh, Jim Cornette was the greatest talker and had uh, could uh, get some tremendous heat. So, but they're up there. And you prefer uh, Conjure and Eaton to Eaton and Lane? Uh, I have no. 
I, I, I don't know. I, Dennis Conti was a tr- tremendous worker. Uh, Stan had a tremendous look. I, I don't have any preference. Maybe I have a preference of Conti because they were the first ones I remember. But to me, as long as Cornette was at the mic, they were tremendous. And, you know, uh, again, even though he's from the redneck part of the world that you are, uh, Bobby Eaton is one of the great workers of all time. And shout out to uh, Condry, who lives right up the road from me. Does he really? Yeah. Oh, man. Rednecks flock together, don't they? Midnight Express, baby, representing. You're not kidding. Uh, so do you talk to Dennis much? Now, I, believe it or not, I ran into him at a fan fest, and he was seated one table over from me. And uh, when he turned around to receive his award, he was facing me and repeated my mortgage commercial to me word for word. I didn't realize that he was from Huntsville, but he had been inundated with that commercial for years and years and years. So he felt like he knew me, and I was super tickled that half of the greatest tag team of all time knew knew me. So uh, a yeah. small world. I, I didn't meet him here in Huntsville, but I know he lives here in Huntsville, and I know what street he lives on, and it's oh. like a mile from my house. Well, I have to come visit you and go see him because he's a good guy, good guy and a great worker. And it, it's it's you put me on the spot here because Stan Lane's the same way to say which version is better. Uh, they're going to say now that the Shivani is being political, politically correct. I liked them both. It's hard to pick one over the other. It really is. Let's talk about well, something else that's hard to uh, debate, and that's Barry Windham. Uh, he was yeah. having five star matches with Flair even in early '86, and many argue. From 86 to 88, he's one of, if not the very best performer in the business. Yep. Uh, from your perspective, what made Barry so damn good? Uh, his size and his ability to move for his size, uh, his look. Uh, you know, I think for the Mid-Atlantic fans, you know, he wrestled as Blackjack Mulligan Jr. for a little while. Uh, uh, he, he was an okay talker. He wasn't the greatest talker in the world, but he was very good. But I think his size and his look and the fact that he was so agile for his size – uh, was very good, and he could just work. You know, some guys can and some guys can't. Ricky Steamboat could work. Rick Flair could work. Ricky Morton, Robert Gibson, the guys we've mentioned, could work. And the guys who could work were the ones, if they could talk, and, and Barry was okay as a talker, were the ones that got pushed. Uh, as a matter of uh, personal preference, what's your favorite incarnation of the Four Horsemen? Well, and this is not to slight Barry or Luger or anybody beyond that, but my favorite incarnation of the Horseman, the very first one with Ole Anderson, Arn, Flair, Tully, and J.J. That's what I remember, the first incarnation. Arn Anderson will tell you that I'm the one that came up with the Horseman name. Uh, or because, And I, 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 I kind of dispute that because I don't really remember doing that, but Arn says that they came in they, we, they on a – on a, on a TBS interview, they came over and they mentioned the horsemen. They put their hands together and we went to black and I looked at Arn. I said, you guys just named yourself. He said, what are you saying? I said, you're the four horsemen. And he says, so I'm the one that named him that. I don't remember that, but if that's what he says, he probably remembers more than I do. But the first one still is to me, the one that I remember and have the most affection for. Although do have a lot of affection uh, for Barry Wyndham because Barry Wyndham got me drunker than anybody else in the business. <laughs> Man, I used to run from him. Literally run from him. That's impressive we, that it was him to do it and not Flair, because I think yeah, everybody I assumes but, it would have been Flair. Well, you know, listen, listen. Getting drunk with Ric Flair was a lot different than getting drunk with Barry Wyndham. Okay? Because 
You get drunk with Barry Windham, he would get drunk with you. You get drunk with Ric Flair, he would take some of his drinks and throw it in a plant so he wouldn't be as drunk as you and so you could make an ass out of yourself and he could laugh at you. But, uh, oh, yeah. But uh, but Barry Windham, uh, he would come into a bar. He would say, Shivani, what are we going to drink? And I would say, I'm out of here because I knew that somebody would have to carry me about to my room. Uh, but, but, uh, yeah, Barry was, uh, Barry got me the drunkest I ever been in Albuquerque. But anyway, uh, great worker. <laughs> now it's time for our main event with another great worker. Uh, it's what you remember this show most for. It's the main event. It's, uh, the NWA world heavyweight championship match where our champion, Ric Flair is seconded by JJ Dillon, and they're going to take on sting. And before the match, we meet the five judges at ringside. We've got Jason Hervey from the Wonder Years TV show, Eddie Haskell, whose real name was Ken Osmond from the new Leave it to Beaver on TBS, uh, former wrestler and front office guy, Sandy Scott, uh, and uh, Pat, Penthouse Pet of the Year, Patty Mullen, mm. and Gary Juster from the NWA office. You guys wow. were careful to only reference Patty Mullen as Pet of the Year and never say the word Penthouse. Was that a TBS call or a Jim Crockett call? No, that was a TBS call. That was TBS call. They were afraid of their own shadow back then. Uh, how does she get involved with something like this? And is somebody knocking on her door at the hotel after the show wearing just a belt and a robe and nothing else? <laughs> what are you trying to set me up here for? Well, I mean, I'm just saying I did a Google image no, I search. You, I know what you're saying. Uh, since that was a Greensboro show, I drove home. I didn't hang around with the boys after that, okay? Had that been in St. Louis or had that been in L.A. or somewhere else, I may have been able to tell you if anything happened after the event. But I didn't. I went home like a good boy. So there. I don't want anybody to say that Shivani accused someone of nailing Patty Mullen after the event. If that happened, I don't know. Now. Ask me another question. How did she get involved Shit with disturbing this? Disturbing redneck. How, how's she here? I mean, how does this come about? Why do you have uh, a, a nudie pinup on your show? I, I don't have an answer for that, with the exception of, I guess we thought back then, and I think I'm right here, that uh, having a sex symbol part of our show would help elevate our show and then again we didn't do enough to show her to elevate it right i mean well i don't know what you watch the match and she's just there we don't show we don't have close-ups of her we don't show how sexy she looks nothing so i think we dropped the ball there i think you know i i think if if we're trying to sell sex, which is obviously something that we're trying to sell or we wouldn't have her there, then we should probably uh, jazz it up a little bit. And we failed to do that. Uh, when I Google searched or did an image search rather for Patty Mullen, uh, I was able to determine that using the no hair, no flare mantra, she did indeed qualify for a shot at the title. But you can't confirm or deny that uh, she went Broadway. <laughs> you're, 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 you know what you're trying to do to me, don't you? Yep, I'm trying to get a yeah. quotable out of you. Yeah, you're no, you're you're trying to put put me on the fucking spot. 
I know what you're trying to do. Okay. She may have been Hitler's mustache. I don't know. Okay. Did she get a shot at the title? <laughs> well, who in the hell didn't? <laughs> Thank I don't you. know. Now, anything else you'd like to say about the match? Well, I want to talk about uh, Jason Hervey's involvement in JCP and WCW. How did that relationship come to be? I've always been puzzled by it. I know eventually he became good friends with Eric Bischoff, but this is way before Bischoff. So how does this uh, come about? Uh, Jason Hervey loved wrestling, loved professional wrestling. Uh, who his contact was with JCP, I don't know. But, you know, obviously Jason Hervey was was well known uh, uh, from his uh, from the TV show, The Wonder Years. And, of course, I always remember him in uh, Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Uh, and he dated Missy Hyatt. Uh, probably. Uh, <laughs> I shouldn't even brought up her name. The way your mind is working right now. My mind's uh, not on Deborah at all. See, <laughs> and neither is mine. Okay, but he was dating. He was dating Missy Hyatt, and I guess that's how he got his foot in the door, so to speak. So he probably got it more than the door. Uh, tell the younger listeners uh, who Sandy Scott and Gary Juster were, please, sir. Sandy Scott, who has since passed away, uh, one of the great tag team wrestlers uh, with uh, his brother George Scott. And uh, he worked in backstage uh, area with uh, Jim Crockett Promotions. He worked in uh, he worked in promotions, and he had some towns that he was the promoter for, uh, and was one of my good friends. And uh, I worked in the office with him. We had desks across from each other, and for me to be able to share an office with Sandy Scott was a big deal for me because I had watched Sandy Scott for years and years. Uh, one of the great company men of all company men of all time, and. Uh, and also one of the great uh, – he had some great stories. He and his brother, George, uh, had a tremendous disagreement uh, and didn't speak to each other, which is something that not many people knew about. Sandy never discussed that. You know, George went on to be, a, as you know, a very successful booker and I guess was also working for the, uh, the WWF back then. Uh, so they had uh, – they had a – some sort of spat. Gary Jester uh, was out of the Baltimore area, was a promoter. Uh, Gary and I still stay in contact with each other because Gary's a great baseball fan. He lives in the Atlanta area, and I do the Gwinnett Braves, the AAA team, and I've had Gary come to uh, some of our games. Uh, and Gary was a guy who just loved the business and uh, got his name by promoting in Baltimore and basically uh, was uh, moved to the front office. Gary and I had tremendous arguments love to argue with gary uh because uh he had always took a different side he and i you know had had a had a great relationship but uh sandy scott and gary juster how about the you talk about porn mustaches how about juster's mustache in that show it's epic it needs its own Isn't episode it, something else? it needs its own <laughs> show now yeah. that we all know who they all are uh yeah. why are we trying this judge concept this feels like a dusty roads idea uh, it seems like a lot of shows around this time started using them. And the reason I start to think it's a Dusty Rhodes idea, as you mentioned on our Goldberg episode, which is available now in the archives, that Dusty really liked angles that involved championship rings because he felt like that's what they used in real sports. Is that the yeah. thinking here? Boxing uses judges, so we should too? Yeah, that's the thinking here. And also, to me, uh, 
and I'm going back to back then and even more so now when I watch it again, to me, uh, it just – they had the judges there and you knew the judges were going to determine the outcome of the match, right? Yeah, you would feel like you know it's pointless to have them there if it's just going to be a clean finish. Exactly, exactly. To me, it kind of uh, – it, it, it foreshadowed what was to come. It did. I, I and I, I even knew. I didn't know what the finish was going to be, but I damn well knew as this was going along that these judges are going to rule this thing a draw. I knew that was going to be it. Uh, it's worth mentioning here that Darius Rucker, who many still associate with Hootie and the Blowfish, has the robe that Flair is wearing for this show. Uh, he bought it at an auction more than a dozen years ago, and every now and again, we'll tweet out pictures of it. So find Darius wow. on Twitter if you'd like to see this robe present day. Uh, famously, this is a 45 minute time limit to this match. And, uh, as a reminder, JJ Dillon is locked inside a shark cage suspended above the ring. Uh, how long has this cage over the ring concept been a part of wrestling? We've seen it for a long time. The first time I remember seeing it is uh, in Atlanta, but I'm sure it happened a lot earlier than that. Do you remember anybody being booked in one of these as like a rib because they were scared of heights or something like that? Yeah, I remember Cornette being booked in one, and I think Cornette was afraid of heights. I think that was pretty much well known, but you know, after the uh, the scaffold match, which I think, and that's uh, going to be, uh, I don't know, we'll talk about the night of the Skywalkers another time. I think uh, you had everybody afraid of a scaffold match back then. Everybody, even the the Road Warriors, were were afraid. But I, I I remember Cornette being in the being suspended in the cage. And I remember Cornette just kind of sitting down at the bottom of the cage. Uh, and I guess they all thought he was afraid of heights, and maybe it was done as a rib to him. I knew Jim Cornette was afraid to fly, knew that. So being suspended in the air, he probably was afraid of that as well. JJ so. uh, Dillon, of course, had a big role do, behind do you know, the can scenes. I ask you, can I interrupt you here? Yeah. Do you know something I don't know? Are you setting me up for some shit like you did with uh, uh, Ric Flair? And No. Okay. Because, you know, you are setting me up with some shit. Well, I mean, that's what we do. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I want to mention, though, we're going to talk a lot about J.J. Dillon on this show. Not this one in particular, but J.J. was kind of Dusty's right-hand man in the front office with a lot of the yeah. details of the booking. And uh, he's one of the unsung heroes of Jim Crockett Promotions. Would you agree with that, Tony? Yeah, uh, J.J. was one of the in – in an office that was a mom-and-pops uh, run company, very understaffed, J.J. Uh, got a lot accomplished. Uh, many times when J.J. would walk out to do an interview with me, he would let me know what was going on when other people wouldn't. And uh, he uh, – he had everything. He had this red book of his where he had everything in the book, all all matches, all house shows that we all looked through. We would make copies of it so we could so we could do the the promos on. He was the most organized man I've ever worked with. He really was. And uh, as a matter of fact, uh, Conrad, I want to thank you for this. But since we started doing uh, what happened when, I have reconnected with a lot of people. Been calling. Uh, getting, uh, you know, I know some people that can get me uh, telephone numbers, uh, and I called JJ the other day and talked to him, and he's going to be at WrestleCon as well. You're exactly right, unsung hero. 
whatever came out of Dusty's brain, J.J. would put down on paper, would remind Dusty of it, would show Dusty what came down. And the only thing Dusty had to do was create in his head, and J.J. was there to put it down on paper. Uh, you know, uh, he wasn't a, uh, a heel manager like a Jim Cornette, but he was still a very good heel manager. Uh, so I agree with that. You know, I agree. JJ's a great man, and I'm so glad I got to talk to him a couple of days ago. This match thank, is thank what, you for that, buddy. You're welcome, kind sir, and uh, we hope everybody's digging it. Go hit the subscribe button, tell your friends. Tony's back in wrestling, man. Yes, uh, sir, baby, I'm back. Come on, I'm back. Put your butt in that seat. That's the greatest. Uh, shit. Uh, this is. I'm not saying that. Uh, this is things coming out. Dollar. I'm charging you a dollar every time I say it. Okay. Are you are you half a dollar so far? <laughs> I should charge you for every time I say fuck. And uh, then you'd be broke. I don't have comma money. <laughs> Here we are. Sting's coming out party. The main event against Ric Flair. Yeah. Uh, of course, many remember he was a part of the UWF, uh, and they have been purchased the previous April. He's gaining some steam here as a baby face. He's got the blonde hair, the crew cut, the colorful gear, the face paint. Uh, he's so 80s, it's not even funny. Uh, Ric Flair has been credited with putting Sting on the map with this match. Uh, and a lot of people say that Flair even handpicked Sting for the show. Do you remember Sting being in this match with Flair as being Flair's idea? Or did somebody else have this idea and want to just try it? I think Dusty had the idea, but I think Dusty would. I think Dusty discussed a lot of what he wanted to do with Flair, with Flair, because you know they had a lot of respect for each other, uh, and uh, so I, I have a feeling this was Dusty's idea. But I have a feeling that you know that he uh, consulted with Ric Flair before it happened. You know, I I I, I kind of equate this match uh, with with when Ric Flair put. Ricky Steamboat on the on the map by giving him uh, by having Steamboat beat him for the world television title uh, on TV many many years ago and that began one of the great feuds of all time uh, so I kind of equate this with that you know Flair Flair knew Rick Flair as you know was maybe the greatest worker ever uh, and one of the reasons he was the greatest worker ever is that he knew that to be a great worker he had to have a great partner, babyface or heel across the ring. Uh, Steamboat was that. Sting was that. Terry Funk was that. I mean, we can go down the list. Junkyard Dog was not that. Uh, may he rest in peace. Great guy. Uh, so this was one of the guys that probably Flair was very high on. And uh, Dusty thought it would be a good thing. And they, they agreed to it. And we saw it. Do you remember anybody in the office being pro sting besides Dusty? Uh, was the common thinking that this guy could be the guy, or is this supposed to just be a one-off? It feels like a one-off because there's not much follow-up after this. Hmm. No, I, I thought we, uh, I thought we all thought he could be the guy. I don't think there was any, uh, I don't think there was any feeling that this was a one-off. Maybe, maybe we dropped the ball on that. Yeah, I think so. We'll get into that in a minute. It's worth yeah. mentioning here. A lot of fans remember that the Ultimate Warrior and Sting started together. Right. Uh, but some fans somehow believe that Sting was only pushed in response to the WWF pushing Warrior. But that's just not the case. The Warrior started with the WWF in June of 87. 
And that's just a couple of months after Crockett buys the UWF that April. Uh, Warrior would make his pay-per-view debut this very same night as the Clash of the Champions at WrestleMania 4, and he wouldn't win the Intercontinental title until SummerSlam 88 months after this. Uh, So let's get to the match. Lots of flare chops early. Uh, Sting starts to no-sell some of those. Sting controls the bout until he rushes for flare in the corner. Rick moves, and then Nate takes over. Uh, Flair controls the action for an extended period of time, which was kind of standard for Flair matches back then. Somewhere around the 30-minute mark, uh, Flair gets the figure four. Sting is able to reverse it and nearly gets Rick to submit. When we get to the 40-minute mark, the ring announcer Tom Miller starts doing a minute-by-minute countdown, and there's lots of near finishes by both men until Sting hits a stinger splash and then the Scorpion Deathlock with less than 30 seconds left. Uh, The Nature Boy holds on until the final bell, and then we go to the judge's decision. Uh, I don't know why we have five judges, um, and it's revealed that we do uh, going into this. So you kind of know this is going to be uh, a scorecard situation. But we've got five judges, and we go to a 2-2-1 result because Sandy Scott called it a draw. Uh, right. What do you uh, think? Need... Go ahead. Can I interrupt you here? Yeah. It was five judges, but didn't Tom Miller only reveal three judges? making the call he may have he revealed gesture for sting patty mullen for flair and sandy scott calling a draw he did not mention eddie haskell he did not mention jason hervey unless i saw an edited version of it well let me tell you let me ask this again because maybe i wasn't paying attention who did patty mullen vote for rick flair (laughs) You are, you are one shit disturber, buddy. Uh, what do you think of the match, man? Uh, you are listen, listen. You are one shit disturber. Thank you. You're welcome. Go ahead. What do you think of the match? It won the 1988 Wrestling Observer Match of the Year. Yeah. What do I think of the match? I think that was the match that showed how great Ric Flair really is. I mean, the the old thing in the business, and you probably know this, Conrad, was that he will always call the match. Right. Right. He called a great match that night. Sting was still, you know, Sting Sting was a good worker, okay? But Sting was elevated that night because he was in the match with Ric Flair. That's what I thought about that match. Also, I can tell you what I thought about this match, and I'm going I'm to say this very honestly. Uh, I thought, looking at it again, and I watched it a couple of days ago, and, you know, I'm kind of now watching it uh, – as an observer, uh, armchair quarterback, uh, back then I thought that I was as good as Jim Ross in my mind. But after listening to that match, there was no question that Jim Ross was superior to me. He said some things that just, just made me laugh. I mean, he was so good at putting guys over. And I didn't realize it back at that time. Uh, but I just thought he was... His excitement in his voice and the way he said things were just just absolutely tremendous. So that that's one of the things I took away from that match as well. I even sent him a text, and I said, I'm watching the Clash of the Champions. Let me see if I still got the text. I said, I'm watching the Clash of the Champions, and I think this is uh, back during the, uh, during the Fantastics match against the Midnight Express. And he uh, threw out a line that I just almost fell off my chair with. Uh, and, 
Oh, he said, uh, he said the referee has about as much control of this match as Festus did when Matt Dillon left town. And that, th- those, those things came out of Jim Ross's mouth and they were, uh, they were folksy. They were, you know, Southernisms, but they just worked. So that's one other thing I took away from that match. Uh, Rick won the 1988 most outstanding wrestler of the year award from the uh, observer that year. Sting would win the most improved wrestler award and most charismatic award. Dusty Rhodes would receive the most overrated, most obnoxious readers, least favorite. And the midnight rider would win worst gimmick. Meanwhile, Vince McMahon won promoter of the year. Once the dust settles, uh, everyone considered the clash of champions to be a huge success, drawing a 5.6 rating. Uh, and the critics enjoyed the clash a lot more than WrestleMania four and their tournament concept. Uh, of course, Mania made more money, and uh, you can't dispute that. But the numbers were way, way down from WrestleMania three, and it just didn't meet expectation, whether it was financially or creatively. Uh, what do you remember the reaction to this show being in the office, Tony? Was everyone happy with the way it turned out, and did Crockett consider yeah. it a victory? We were all static. There was no question we thought it was a victory. Uh, and, and again, I, I didn't watch WrestleMania four, so I don't know. And let's face to be very honest with you, how is, how would Vince follow up WrestleMania three with anything? Right. Yeah, sure. I mean, he had uh, Hogan against Andre, the giant in WrestleMania three. He had savage against steamboat, one of the great matches of all time. So how are you going to follow that up with that tournament concept or whatever? Uh, but I think we all thought that, uh, that we had, uh, won that day. And I even, again, we all read Meltzer's stuff back then. I even, I remember saying, Meltzer saying, and I'm not going to get the line right. And he said, on this day, Jim Crockett promotion kicked Vince's ass. There you go. And I agree with that. I I think that was, that was a, uh, was one of the great moments of my, of my career being a part of that, being able to work with Bob Cottle and being able to work with Jr. and, uh, being able to call those matches. It was a great moment. And, of course, you know, a lot of that led to uh, the excitement uh, of what happened in the Greensboro Coliseum. Looking back on that match again, and, and again, I say this a lot, about being an armchair quarterback, Look, at, you could tell that we were not, at that time, truly good about – we did a lot of things production-wise wrong. Right. Uh, but that was just the beginning. So I can understand that, you know, having the guys walk out where the hard cameras are behind them is wrong. There was a lot of, there was a lot of shots where we had a false finish coming and Tommy Edwards, who was our director back then. And Tommy went on to work at ESPN. Good guy. Tommy would take reaction shots of the fans. He was good at that. He liked reaction shots of the fans, but he would take them sometimes during a false finish. That was wrong. If you watch that out but uh, overall it was it was a great show it really was and the rating success here leads to the clash of the champions becoming a quarterly special and it runs nearly a decade with tbs and many consider this partnership for this event to be something that started to lay the groundwork for turner to eventually buy jim crockett uh let's armchair quarterback it as you like to say here for a few minutes uh sting coming into this had a couple of matches and angles with flair that set this match up uh, and meanwhile, Luger had teamed with Wyndham, 
to win the tag belt, setting up the Wyndham heel turn or joining the horseman. But then Luger decides the chase for the world title is the right spot for him. And that runs the rest of the year. Meanwhile, Sting goes back down the card to working with guys like Mike Rotundo for the TV title after this. And it just seemed to me as if Crockett has failed to capitalize on the momentum they built here with Sting this night. Uh, I get that maybe the plan going into this was the Luger flair, you know, angle and feud and run, but having Luger, you know, just kicked out of the horseman. I mean, I get that that's natural, but when the match comes off, like it does, do you think if they would have pivoted to sting and flair, as opposed to continuing with Luger for the rest of 88, it would have resulted in bigger business. No question. And of course we are second guessing a booker who put his life into this business and was one of the creative, most creative men I've ever worked with. And who's passed away, but being an armchair quarterback, this match should have began a flare and sting run. Yeah. And, and in, in my opinion, clash of the champions was really Crockett digging his heels in and just saying, we're going to compete with them. Damn it. Yeah. Uh, and they go back to Greensboro and they give them what they want. Everybody digs it. Lots of ratings and praise, but then they go back to Luger and they don't make sting the guy. And, uh, it wound up not having the long term effect that maybe people would have liked because ultimately Turner buys the organization in November. So maybe this whole sting, not getting the feud right then wasn't the key factor in the demise, but this could have been maybe the last chance, uh, to kind of right the ship, so to speak. Any final thoughts about the very first clash of the champions here, Tony? I think the clash of the champions changed our business. I, I, I think the clash of the champions started, uh, the ball rolling, although very slowly at that time, for it becoming out of being a, a business uh, where the uh, house shows ruled into a business where the television shows ruled. And I think I agree that it's probably one of the, the moments where Turner uh, Broadcasting realized that this is something that we could own and be a part of our business. Um, and of course, once it will, and this is talk for another time. Once it was sold to Turner, it went to complete shit uh, until Eric Bischoff arrived, and then thanks to the the brains of Turner, it went to shit after that. Uh, so it was a a landmark moment in in Jim Crockett Promotions, and, and I wish that it would have springboarded us. To keep Jim Crockett Promotions, Jim Crockett Promotions, but I think the buying of the UWF office and all the money that was sunk into that company or that part of it, Jimmy moving to Dallas, Dusty moving to Dallas, uh, they had a vision, but they just could not compete with Vince. And the sabotage of Starcade uh, and losing all the money that we lost that time had really cast – the die was die cast for uh, Jim having to sell his company. I don't know if a run with Sting as a guy would have pulled us out or not. But we sold the company, and I say we because I was part of Jim Crockett Promotions. We sold the company to a bunch of turds, and I decided I didn't want to work for those turds. And I went to work for Vince, and a year later, I went back to work for the turds. 
lot going on, but now you know what happened when Jim Crockett Promotions counter-programmed WrestleMania going head-to-head with the creation of the Clash of the Champions. And what do you want to know next week? Here are our poll topics. Go ahead and follow us on Twitter right now at WHW Monday. By the time you're hearing this, the poll is up. You can also follow Tony Schiavone and... Uh, Good luck not getting blocked at Tony Schiavone 24. I am at Hey Hey, it's Conrad. But the poll is at WHW Monday. Poll topic number one Bunkhouse Stampede 1988. We've referenced it a lot in this program. A lot of folks don't think that Dusty should have been the person to win. Maybe it should have been Luger. It's the first time that they decided they wanted to compete with a pay-per-view version of Bunkhouse Stampede. And why not have it head-to-head with the WWF in New York? It ran opposed to the Royal Rumble, and uh, it kind of set up the Clash of the Champions. So the first major show prior to Clash of the Champions, Bunkhouse Stampede 1988 is poll topic number one. I'd like to say that poll topic number one, if you think, I'm going to talk about what happened after the show at the Hemsley Palace that night, you're wrong. Yeah, we'll get it out of him. Poll topic number two, Great American Bash 1988. This is the next major show after the Clash of the Champions. Great American Bash, of course, historically, is one of the great Jim Crockett promotion pay-per-views. And then we would see it uh, continue all the way through WCW. But in 1988, we get what everybody thought was supposed to be the big payoff with Lex Luger taking on Ric Flair. You also have Barry Windham facing Dusty Rhodes. The Road Warriors, Steve Williams, Jimmy Garvin, and Ron Garvin took on Kevin Sullivan, Mike Rotunda, Al Perez, the Russian assassin, and the Ivan Koloff Russian bear in a Tower of Doom match. The Triple Cage that we've all heard about. The Midnight Express took on the Fantastics. Arn and Tully took on Sting and Nikita. And in a dark match, Rick Steiner and Dick Murdoch took on Tim Horner and Kendall William. Poll topic number three, Magnum TA. What needs to be said about Magnum TA that we haven't already covered here on the show? What, are, you, are you asking me that question? Yeah. Okay. Uh, one of my uh, real good friends and confidants back in the 80s, early 80s. A lot of people believe Magnum was being groomed to be the top babyface. Uh, he was, he, he, he was going to be the next big star. Many believe he would be the NWA's answer to Hulk Hogan, but it didn't happen. And we referenced it a couple of times here on the show today. After his tragic accident, which we would cover if Magnum T.A. wins, the decision is made to turn Nikita Koloff. Lots of things change, not just in his life, but in Jim Crockett and the business. Magnum T.A. is poll topic number three. Uh, poll topic number four and brand new entrance into the WWE Hall of Fame. So deserving. One of the greatest tag teams of all time, the Rock and Roll Express. What might we talk about if the Rock and Roll Express win poll topic number four? Uh, We'll talk about how Ricky Morton was one of the great sellers in the entire world and how uh, how all of a sudden Jim Crockett's uh, business, when the Rock and Roll Express and the Midnight Express arrived, uh, went right through the roof. I mean, we all credit Flair and Dusty for a lot of their stuff, but no one did the business Rock and Roll Express and the Midnight Express did. I saw that. So, And also, I I think I may have said this on on a previous episode, and me calling my friends, I called Ricky Morton recently to congratulate him on going to the Hall of Fame. And we had a nice nice chat, really did. So thank you again, uh, Conrad, for letting me reconnect with these people. 
Man, we're happy you're reconnecting with us, the fans, and we'd love to connect with you on Twitter. Follow Tony at Tony Shavani24. I am at Hey Hey, it's Conrad. Of course, the Twitter poll here is at WHW Monday. Let's recap briefly. Buckhouse Stampede 88, Great American Bash 88, Magnum TA, and the Rock and Roll Express. It's an all-Crockett poll. Tell your friends, spread the word, hit the subscribe button, leave us a five-star review, and be sure to follow us on Twitter. We'd love to hear your feedback, your show's topic suggestions, and more importantly, get your vote, get the word out. Follow us right now at WHW Monday. It's that time, Tony. It's that time, but I want to let you know that even though it's the time for us to go, the tape machines are rolling, Conrad's got a chair, and I'm desperately out of time. The rule of NLW Radio never stops. The Ed Milet Show showcases the greatest peak performers sharing their journey, knowledge, and thought leadership. This is one of the all-time best pieces of advice ever given on the show. Actor Rain Wilson. The number one thing that psychologists point to with young people of why they are struggling so much in this mental health epidemic is they don't have resilience. So how do you build resilience if you don't understand suffering itself? The Ed Milet Show is available on YouTube or wherever you listen. <laughs> 